Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us today. We confess that we don't have all the answers, but as a community, we seek to find and follow Jesus and to discover daily the life he has always wanted for us. We hope this message will be encouraging and will inspire you to take the next steps on your spiritual journey. If we can help you in any way, please connect with us. The easiest way is through our website at ericksoncovenant.ca. Let's get started. Well, it's great to be with you today again, friends. And as we begin, I want to thank the worship team for leading us today, as well as the production team for making this all possible. I also want to thank again, Terry Young for sharing with us last week. I really appreciated what he had to say. Now, I know you're familiar with the race to space that happened during the Cold War, but did you ever know that there was also a race to the core? I didn't. My son Ethan was telling me about this, and I dug in a little further. During the 50s, 60s, and 70s, Cold War scientists turned their attention from the sky over our heads to the earth beneath our feet, and they attempted to be the first to drill through the earth's crust and get to the mantle. But in spite of all the ingenuity and the innovation and the effort and the dollars that were spent, it's a race that nobody ever won, at least not yet. The Russians came the closest after 20 years of drilling in the the Kola super deep borehole. They gave it all up, realizing that at 40,230 feet, 12.2 kilometers, they were only a third of the way through the Earth's mantle. And at 180 degrees Celsius, the temperature was twice as hot as they had expected at that depth. Well, they were facing a conundrum. They didn't know what to do. And then the Soviet Union collapsed, the money dried up, and the project was abandoned in 1992. Uh, This is what you find if you go there today, yeah, it's, it's super gripping, I know. You can put that on your tourist list once COVID's over. Well, the American Miscellaneous Society, and no, that name is not a joke, they came up with a made-in-the-USA US, plan, which featured drilling through the Pacific Ocean floor off the coast of Guadalupe, Mexico, where the Earth's crust is a bit thinner, I guess. Uh, Well, in spite of all the innovative technology that was produced to make it happen and later enabled offshore oil drilling, the U.S. project Mohol was canceled due to the spiraling costs just two years before Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon. In the 1990s, the Germans tossed their bits into the ring and but they only got down nine kilometers and then no further. And they still use the hole to do measurements and stuff, but they aren't trying to dig it any deeper. And although the race is no longer fueled by this, you know, communism, capitalism fight, uh, it's still being pursued, actually. Japan is now taking the lead using this huge drilling ship named Chikyu, and they have, it's equipped with GPS and these super controlled jets that can keep this ship steady, uh, making micro adjustments, moving this entire huge ship as little as 20 inches side to side, forward, back. Well, 
Drilling deep isn't yielding the results that Jules Verne had maybe predicted in Journey to the Center of the Earth. No dinosaurs have been found. None are expected to be found. But scientists still do call their work an expedition. I think that gives some life to what they're doing. We thought of it as an expedition, said one scientist, because it really took some time in terms of preparation and execution and because you're really going into no man's land where no one has gone before. And that's really unusual today. You always find down there something that really surprises you. And especially if you go down into an area that is very deep in the crust. Ah, an expedition to the core. It's cutting edge stuff, friends. Sometimes I know we can feel like that when it comes to this book. We can hear it, read it, dig into it, make plans to study it. And we wonder if we'll ever get to the bottom of what it really means. Well, I've got good news. While penetrating the earth's crust still seems to be beyond our reach, digging down to the core of the Christian faith is not. In fact, it's much closer than we often realize. Rather than a core that is inaccessible because we don't have the tools or the time or the resources or the ability or the money to get to it, the good news of Jesus comes to us, if I can say it this way, from the one who is at the very core itself. The one who sits at the very center of the very center of not just our universe, but of all possible universes. The creator of all comes from the core to us so that we can know him, so that we can understand what he's all about, so that we can know what matters most. And asking what matters most is really a way of getting to that core. And when followers of Jesus step back and ask the question, what matters most? We have to admit that, well, what matters most is actually what God thinks matters most. And we think, well, if we can figure out what God wants, what matters most to him, then we can reorient our lives around his desires. At some basic level, that's what it means to be a follower of Christ. And that's why we take the Bible so seriously. We actually want to know what God thinks, what God wants, what God loves, what God hates, what he rejects, what he pursues, what he's planning for. Because as we know that, we're then able to live out his will in our lives. We readily admit that we do not know all these things on our own, that we are not able to see clearly, that we are frail, sinful, that our, our sight is skewed, that we're sinful, short-sighted. But we also confess that God is good, that he is wise, and that he has revealed himself to us. Yes, through this written word, but ultimately through the one who is revealed through this word, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. And so we can say that we believe what matters most is what God wants. So what does God want? God, what do you want? We confess that we're, we're not sure all the time, that, but that we're open and we're ready, we're willing 
and that we stand under, under you, under your word, that we're trusting your son, Jesus, and the guidance of your Holy Spirit. And so we do ask, Jesus, that today you would teach us. Teach us what you want so we know what matters most to us as well. Well, as we drill down, we discover very quickly what God wants. And though it's bigger than any one of us, though we're not the center of God's story, Rather, we've been brought into a much bigger story that has been going on long before us and will be going on much long after us. We discover that in a most incredible, wonderful way, what God wants is good, exceptionally good for us personally, for us as a people, for you, for me, for each and every one. Not that it's easy, It's not that it's without suffering or pain or difficulty, but what God wants is good. Deeply, deeply good. And that's the story that Scripture tells us all throughout. And we keep circling back to that. What is God all about? What is this good thing? How do we pursue that? But today, in a more contained way, we're going to see it all again, boiled right down to the core. So let's read together 1 John Chapter 3, 19 to 24. I'm going to read it all through, uh, and then we'll go back and uh, and focus in on some of the basic stuff uh, in this text today. So, verse 19, 1 John chapter 3. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, If our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. So what's at the very core of the Christian faith? John makes this very clear. And he's actually been doing it every step of the way through his little letter. There's no surprises here. The very core of Christianity, the very essence of what matters most is trusting in Jesus and loving each other. That, above all else, is what God wants. Now, like many of you, my boys and I have been keeping up with The Mandalorian. Now, if you aren't a Star Wars fan, I'm sorry. No, like, I'm really sorry. I feel sorry for you that you're not, because you are missing out, friends. But anyway, I, I digress. From the ever-developing world of Star Wars, now shepherded by the force of Disney, comes the wonderful story of, well, he's called Mando, but he's a nameless warrior, one of the Mandalorians, who becomes the sworn protector of the child. The child who's been fondly yet inaccurately dubbed Baby Yoda. And I gotta admit to you, I, I love this guy. Every time he's on the screen, 
I laugh. You can see the expression on my face even now. I love this guy. My kids, my boys mock me for it. They keep looking at me every time he shows up on the screen and I'm smiling away because I love Baby Yoda. Anyway, one of the things you discover about the Mandalorians is that they live by a code, a set of shared values that they call the way. And when one Mandalorian meets another one, they reinforce this shared code with the simple affirmation, this is the way. This is the way. It will do well. Reserve some for the foundlings. As it should always be, the foundlings are the future. This is the way. This is the way. This is the way. This is the way. It's all over the place and it helps them remember that though others may live however they want to live according to whatever codes they have, these Mandalorians follow a code. This is the way. Well, you know where I'm going with this, don't you? Within a couple years of Jesus' resurrection, followers of Jesus were actually dubbed people of the way. You can find this in the book of Acts. People who were not known simply about, they were not known simply by what they thought or how they talked, but they were known by how they lived and the way they walked. This is so significant. Followers of the way reminds us that being a Christian, being a Christ follower is not an abstract theory or idea. It's about a daily practice that following Jesus is an active lifestyle. It's not about agreeing to a set of principles, but it's about embracing the revelation of God in Jesus Christ and being changed by that encounter in real time. Being a Christian is is not just something that we hold only in our heads, but something we follow as a way of life with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so, friends, this is what John has been telling us all along. He's been saying, this is the way. Trust in Jesus. Love each other. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus. Love as I have loved you. Love as you've been commanded. And everything he's been saying all the way through this letter, backwards and forwards, using metaphor and example and story and command, it's all to illuminate and inspire us to follow this core truth. God wants us to trust our lives to Jesus, knowing that it's only through Jesus that we come to know God and love God, that it's only through the Son that we can walk in the light and experience forgiveness and live free. And God wants us to love each other as Jesus has loved us, receiving the love of God and then living that love out for others. And that's why John not only reveals the core here, but he states it as a command. Do this. Obey this. Live this way, which is hard for us because most of us do not like being told what to do. You know, I much prefer to receive advice, suggestions, you know, constructive feedback, something I can sort of sift through and take if I resonate with it, but reject it if I don't. Right? That's what I want. A lot of you, I think, is probably true. Isn't that true? That's not true of you? Yeah, it probably is. We all pull back from commands, don't we? 
We like to be the ones who decide. We don't like being told what to do. I think there's probably two reasons for this. One is just simply that we like to be the boss and it sort of gets our hackles up when someone tells us what to do because it suggests that we weren't doing the right thing and we get all defensive. Submitting is hard, right? Loving others is hard too. We know this. So there's that. But I also think it's because we've seen rules abused. We've maybe seen or maybe even grew up with a form of the Christian faith that was deeply religious and God wasn't, well, maybe he was there somewhere, but it was harder to find him. A, a, a religion or a form of Christianity that was so caught up with an exterior picture that there wasn't a lot of heart left in it. And so we don't, have anything to, we don't want to have anything to do with that kind of rule-based religion. I get both of that. And I hope you're hearing as we dig through these things that God doesn't want that either. And yet John here, he pulls absolutely no punches. He says, this is what God wants. This is what's pleasing to him. This is God's command. This is how the children of God live. And this is, I think, where we need to be reminded, maybe in particular if our hackles are a bit up by the command idea, we need to be reminded of what God is asking of us. We need to be reminded who it is that's asking us. God, the good God, is telling us what he wants because he actually wants us to experience his transforming love and then to offer that transforming love to others. This is what God wants. Loving people. Like people who are loving, loving people. And friends, this is good. What God has commanded us to do is good. It's life-changing. It's good for you. It's good for me. It's good for anyone we're in relationship with. Remember, what God wants for us is good because he is good. Furthermore, God doesn't just command us to follow a laundry list of random rules. He's not being confusing or petty or difficult. It's not culturally specific. He drills through all the hypocrisy, all the regulation, all the pride, all the religion to take us to the very core, summing it up in one word, love. Love. Love Jesus. Love others. Love because you have first been loved. What is the way? It's the way of love. Here on Valentine's weekend, you can wrap that one up and offer it to the people in your lives as the way of love. Well, some quick application. First of all, I want to encourage you to have this particular conversation with your spiritual friend, in your spiritual friendships, with a brother or a sister or a fellow seeker. When you ask the question, how goes your walk, or you share how your walk is going, talk about the ways that you're obeying the command to trust in Jesus and to love others. Share honestly in the ways that that's a struggle for you, the ways that you are wrestling with that, the ways you might feel like you're failing. Confess the ways you're struggling, but also the ways you're deepening in your trust in Jesus and your love for others. And inspire each other in some concrete ways you can love a particular person in your life this next couple of weeks. Talk about those things in your spiritual friendships. But also, I encourage you to do some personal reflection 
on the, on the subject of obedience. How do you feel about that? The idea of being told this is what you must do. What does that uh, do in your heart? Some of us feel guilt. Some of us feel shame. Some of us feel condemnation. Some of us feel relief because someone's finally telling us what to do. But how do you feel about these twin commands? What is your heart response? What is your mind response? Take some time to reflect on this question. How do I feel about obeying God? What matters most is what God wants. And what he wants is for us to love Jesus and love others. Or perhaps more accurately, to receive his love through Jesus so that we can share that love with others. But there is one additional thing that God wants. It's not another command. We've got the two we need. Rather, it has to do with our lived experience as we are obeying these commands of God. Did you catch it when I read through the passage the first time? I went right to the core, the core of the teaching, which is not just the core of today's passage, but really the core of this whole letter, really the core of the scripture, which is these twin commands. The twin command to believe in Jesus to, and not believe as a, just a mental thing, but trusting your life to Jesus and loving others, which is, just as a side note, sounds very similar to what Jesus said when he said, love God, love others, right? It's all of the same thing, of course. But these twin commands, they are bookended. You could almost say they're, they have a, a, a mantle and a crust around these two cores. They're bookended right here in this passage with the phrase, this is how we know. You can see it at the beginning and at the end. This is how we know we belong to the truth and have set our hearts at rest in his presence. Or this is how we know that God lives in us. And John uses this to remind us again of who we are, or maybe more accurately, of whose we are. Now, I'm very relieved by what's said here because John is very aware that as followers of Jesus in this way of love, we often feel that we are not getting it right. We're often very aware of the ways that we fail others, where we even try to love but don't quite love, or we're confused by even what we should do where we're not always confident that we're trusting in Jesus quite as much. We struggle. We stumble. Sometimes we fail to love the way we should. We hurt people and we forget what we're supposed to be doing. And in other words, we do sin. (laughs) And while we are forgiven and we confess that sin and we receive God's cleansing life in us and we're trying our best, we acknowledge that we make mistakes and we fail to do the very things God wants. And so we can feel kind of despairing or guilty. shamed at different times. Well, what of it? As we close, I want you to hear very clearly what God wants. God wants you and I to live this obedient life of love with confidence. And he knows that we can suffer from our feelings of guilt or condemnation, even when we have been forgiven. And so I want you to notice what he says here. He says, if our hearts condemn us, this is part of the the, the mantle around the core. He says, uh, after saying, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and have set our hearts at rest in his presence. He says, if our hearts condemn us, 
God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Now, I just want you to camp there for a moment. This might be the kind of verse that you need to actually let down deep. I'll tell you, as a bit of an, a bit of an aside, but relevant, I've often used this verse with some of you, with others who are struggling with guilt and with shame, who though they've confessed their sin, don't feel different. They, feel, they still feel condemned. And I, I lead them to this verse because it's so significant to me, and I, I encourage you, if you're a person who struggles with shame or despair or guilt, to memorize this verse and use it in your prayer. That if my heart condemns me, God is greater than my heart and he knows everything. So in those times when we do feel, ah, I'm not sure and I messed up again and I I know Jesus has forgiven me, but I just continue to feel, hey, you know what? Even if my heart condemns me, God is greater than my heart and he knows everything. I think there's a beautiful assurance in there. But the goal is, is that you wouldn't have a heart that condemns you because he then goes on to say, and if your hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. God wants us to live confident, obedient lives. That's his goal, confident living. Furthermore, he wants us to know that us to be confident that God lives in us because he's given us of his Holy Spirit. Which if you read on to the next chapter, we're not touching this for now, but in the next chapter, it's really clear that the spirit God gave us is the spirit that continues to point us to Jesus, continues to enable us to receive the love of God through Jesus. And all of that wraps this command up, wraps up the core, reminding us that God wants us to live this life of love with real confidence, living confidently, obeying his command to trust in Jesus and to love others. And friends, I think you'll agree. When you drill through the crust, drill through the mantle and get down to the core, it's this life of love, no more, no less, which will not only change our lives, our relationships, our marriages, change the way we parent, the way we engage, the way we think, act, speak. It'll change our health, our own experience of life. But not only that, it will ripple out to the world around us. Because God's love, which has been made real to us through Jesus and is now by the Spirit being made real to others through us, that's not only the love that powers the universe. It's the love that will transform this universe into the reality that God wants, which, as it turns out, really is what matters most. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.